Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On this week's episode, I'm excited to welcome a guest who is simply put, pure magic. An iconic impresario of illusion, he weekly appears on television as the host, creator, and curator of The Carbonaro Effect, a wildly popular hidden camera program that takes prestidigitation to the streets. He's performed on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno and Jimmy Kimmel Live and has taken to the road on sold-out tours. He also has the distinction of being the inaugural recipient of the Copperfield Prize, recognizing his contribution to the art of magic. Also an accomplished and award-winning actor, he's appeared in a diverse set of films and movies like HBO's The Newsroom, Wizards of Waverly Place, and Queer Cult Classic, and other gay movie. Please welcome to the show, producer, actor, and master magician, Michael Carbonaro. All right. Hey, boy, that was a tongue twister up there. Well, you know, I like... You said prestidigitation very well. Look, I didn't even do it right. Honestly, uh, it's a word that I have been wanting to use on the show for a long time. I love words. Oh, yeah. You know, the Magic Castle has a parlor of prestidigitation. Really? And that's always a tough one, too. Yeah, it's such a good word. There's, there's Press like, the digitation. Press, can't. Yeah, I feel like there's weight to it. There's a little sleight of hand or sleight of tongue to even say it. Sleight of tongue. Is that a thing? Is I'm going to make it a thing. Word magic. A new show. <laughs> sleight of tongue. Uh, I feel like that could deviate really quickly, though. And shouldn't it? It should. <laughs> uh, so thank you for coming today. I'm so excited. This is great. Uh, well, you know, why don't we just kick things off the yeah. same way I start every show with the same first question I ask every guest, and it is simply this. Mm-hmm. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. Why does horror appeal to you? Why do you think there's a draw to the genre? Whatever, mm. but why horror? Horror. I, uh, for, I would say for me, the draw to horror was really uh, influenced special effects based. I was all about being a makeup artist that's what I wanted to be I was so probably thriller might have been the first uh my first draw into the world of like monster makeup and zombies it was that little mini movie and it was so good and the making of it showed how they put the effects on their zombies faces and I was I was like that's what I want to do for the rest of my life and I just used to kill it on Halloween and I loved all of that and I think that um you know, I would buy a lot of special effects supplies at a magic shop. And it's kind of like how I got into magic and special effects mm-hmm. all kind of became, a, a, you know, it's, it's, it's under one roof. I like I think a lot about this, too, because I'm a magician, you know, I'm maybe even above all things, because I still don't know what I do. Right. Right. But above all things, it's a magician. And magician is, you know, this whole industry is magic. You know, being an actor is magic. Making a movie is magic. Special effects are magic and magic tricks are magic. And the things that you buy in a magic shop are really interesting to me. Like a magic shop usually has in it, you know, pranks, gags, jokes, magic tricks, monster masks, makeup, horror. And like, right. that's all that stuff that lives in this weird, bizarre, mm, shrouded in shadow mystery house. And there's there's that's what I'm drawn to. And um, yeah. That's, I mean, I just, for me, it was magic and special effects, and that's what got me into horror movies and and being a magician. One of the things, when you were talking about the magic shop, uh, yeah, there was something that you singled out that when I was kind of doing some reading uh, in other articles about your work, uh, a word kept popping out to me that I was greatly amused by. And uh, you mentioned that magic shops frequently feature uh, items that you can use for pranks. Right. And a lot of uh, places refer to you as a prankster. Right, prankster. And I was uh, kind of greatly taken with that because I guess I never really made that connection in the world of magic that there is an element of pranking to it. Uh, because I just think of uh, pranks as like, oh, you put a whoopee cushion on like your aunt's seat and just like tee-hee. Yes. Whereas what you do is very complex. Right, an elaborate mind. Well, yeah, I have trouble with that word too because exactly what you said, it right. like prank makes it sound like, oh, like, you know, the gum is going to be garlic. Blah, you got me. But like pranking, you know, in the world of where, I mean, I could think back to one of the first pranks that I pulled off I was in junior high and I um, there might have been one before but this was elaborate I, I had a friend who was my first magic assistant second actually but she was the one um, <laughs> for so long and uh, she was terrified of aliens and together with a friend of mine we spent an afternoon constructing like plaster alien heads 
like masks. We kind of made like the way you do a life mask. We kind of made it on like uh, we took clay and put it on top of like a salad bowl and shaped an alien head and then laid those plaster bandages down and spray painted it with like automotive paint. So it had this pearly whitish bluish shine and the big black eyes of those aliens. She was so afraid of them. And we hid behind uh, a minivan and we, you know, worked with her mom. We coerced her mom to set, you know, let us know when she was going to go out to walk the dog. And when she left her house to walk the dog, we just popped up these little alien heads from behind the, you know, like puppeted them from behind the minivan, like looking at her. And she fell to the ground in like shrieking, terrified horror, like frozen over, couldn't move, eyes snotting. And um, we we very quickly jumped out and told her that it was just a joke because it was a very visceral, hor- horrific reaction. But there was like this special effects prank, whole staging a reality situation that that's what it was like really creating the illusion in her real world that there were aliens, aliens. and because that's what she was most terrified about. So why not bring that to life? Well, and I'm really fascinated by the fact that uh, one of the first kind of pranks that you pulled off or, or tricks that you pulled off is rooted in this world of horror. Because one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, knowing your affinity for the genre, as well as your work in the world of magic, do you feel that there is an interconnectedness in general? If not that, then certainly within your own work. An interconnectedness in like, horror and prank? In your, yeah, in your interest in horror and your interest in magic. they Do they come together? Absolutely, yes. I mean, yes. A- and I, I, I'm I, in mystery of it myself, but they're definitely, right. it. like the same to say that, you know, a magic shop sells both horror and magic. It's interesting that they're under the same roof there. You know, right. like there is a connection there. And the Freddy Krueger who was my hero, my first major love of a horror character, um, he was like the master showman. I mean, you know, I always say that like David Copperfield and Freddy Krueger were my two like childhood idols. And right. it's, they're very similar in in a not burned, you know, child molester way. Sorry, right. David Copperfield. But like, <laughs> but like, um, you know, he was a, he was the showman. He was the master showman, and he had his glove was like his wand. He led the show, and he took like his he took people through a series of effects, right. really like special effects, but almost tricks. Each little murder was like an act of magic. And I, uh, you know, the way I would watch David Copperfield hosting a magic show when he would take us through acts, and Freddie was funny, and David was funny. There was this definite similarity between. The teetering and Copperfield would teeter back and forth from being really dramatic, right, and then re- being totally goofy. And the same with Freddie; it would be like terrifying and then totally goofy. And there's this just bouncing back and forth about that both worlds of horror and magic, or at least that style of doing magic that I think is really cool. Or I guess horror can be different too, because not all horror has comedy in it too. But there's that right. there is that balance in in horror that goes the, the line between horror and comedy that plays so well. Um, so magic does the same kind of thing. I think it's interesting. And while you were talking, I, w- I was starting to think about maybe what they share is this sort of heightened sense of reality, right. where you take your expectation and then you kick it up to this this larger scale personification. Freddie is, is right. big. He's a heightened yes creation. And I guess David Copperfield is as well, because you don't go to see a magician and want you know, your accountant or so you want right. somebody who really brings something larger than life. Yeah. And I think that in that way, your your connection to them uh, both and how you kind of have corroborated their, their identities with your childhood makes sense because they both have that kind of sense of, of heightened otherness. Yeah. I mean, I think that you, Freddie's like the master of dreams and right. a magician sort of, right, the master of dreams. So there's that. Yeah, there's something about that showmanship. It's the showmanship about it that I was so drawn to in both of those worlds. And both of them have tricks, literally tricks. You know how, you know, my first magic book was probably Tom Savini's Bizarro, which was a special effects guide taking us through like Creepshow and Friday the 13th and all these amazing gags. I mean, he did some tricks, real tricks, psychological magic principles to pull off his illusions, all practical and awesome. But like, you know, he had this one illusion of, uh, and he used it in Martin, where he uh, had a razor blade that just went right across uh, a victim's wrist and the blood went pouring out. And it was a real arm, a real razor blade. And it was this incredible 
just simple as most magic tricks are, like use of a, of a bladder hiding in your hand, like a baby ear syringe full of blood that you'd hide behind a dull razor, that when you ran it across your wrist, you squeeze it, and it just gave this perfect illusion, illusion of gushing blood from an arm. I mean, these are magic tricks. I love that your foundations in magic, uh, as, as we have been talking about, that even your first magic book is a special effects horror Guide. Yeah. Because Tom Savini is one of the great effects artists of horror. Yes. And uh, that you think of him as, as sort of the first text of illusion. Yeah, and he, and he refers to himself as a magician. You know, and uh, I think that in the forward of that book, Stephen King is kind of pleading with him not to give away too many of the secrets. Like, let, let's keep the fans, because, you know, in mystery a little bit. There, so there was sort of even that a magician's not supposed to give away their secrets. And like effects, we see behind the scenes, and we see effects all the time. And people do love to see how they work, but there's there is supposed to be that like don't tell you tell people how the tricks work. Well, that begs an interesting question because I think that now uh, in in the era of sort of the the re-release and prestige release of a, a lot of these horror classics, we get a lot of these behind the scenes featurettes and the making of, and here's yeah. like how the gears work. And I is is rooted in horror as I am, I've never really liked that because I, I want to submit to the world. I Good don't for you. want to know the secret of how it's made. And do you, do you find that that is, that it takes away from the magic for you when you're watching well, these things? interestingly, I love to see how all the special effects are done. But when it comes to the world of magic, I, there's nothing I love better than to be fooled and then stay fooled. I mean, there's I, there's some tricks if, you know, if a, a magician, the amazing thing about magic is that even if you know how the tricks work, a, ma a really great magician can still fool you with that same principle. It's right. like a human, you know, the, if the, the lies and the, you know, the manipulation is buried in layers, it's, it always works. It could be a very potent formula to a trick. And I get fooled all the time. People ask me that. Do you ever get fooled by magicians? Of course. Right. And like... I love that, love to be fooled by that. But I don't think I've ever watched a movie where there was an effect and I didn't go, I need to know how they did that. It's like, for, with, with special effects, I like really want to know how to do it. With magic, sometimes I'm like, oh, I'd like to like retain that mystery myself. But then do you like to take some of that knowledge that you learn from the movies and apply it to your own work in the Absolutely. world? Absolutely, yeah. Well, I mean, my TV show, The Carbonero Effect, has, right. they are really like practical. A lot of them are just like practical special effects. And literally the way like you would cut back and forth in a movie from like the a person screaming to the effect and then you change the effect back and forth. I'm like doing a lot of those step by step illusions where I distract the person to get from phase one to phase two and like switch props out and things like that in a way. And now I'm giving away secrets right now in a way, right. but not really. But but like, you know, there is a, a really great my show because my, my show is a magic show, but it's not really a magic show. It's kind of like a uh, a show where. I'm, t I'm making somebody, you know, as one of my co-producers and magicians on the show, David Regal, uh, who's a master magician and uh, a writer and uh, an incredible comedic uh, collaborator on the show, you know, says that it's really about like giving someone a really bizarre day, like making somebody believe in that really bizarre thing. Because with magic, you know, usually a magic show, you'd say, okay, here's a magician, he's going to do some magic. And you're like, I'm going to suspend my disbelief, but in my mind, I know he's a magician and there's tricks behind it. But with right. pranking or the television show, we're really utilizing those skill sets uh, of magic and special effects to act actually get someone to recompute their actual reality and the world and what's possible and not possible. And one of the things that you do quite frequently on the show, which I think ties back into your, your origin story, for lack of a better term, is you do frequently employ effects makeup. And I love yeah. that that's something that, you know, from the beginning you said was a drawing interest of you. Uh, for you, and and you still utilize this. You wear these amazing disguises. I was right. re reading uh, an interview in Out where you uh, said that you you affected the Nicole, Nicole Kidman nose from the hours for a gag. That's at one right. Point. I had a silicone nose. Uh, and and is that just? I mean, obviously, that's just because you have such a great love for special effects. But is it also because people? have started to kind of look for you out in the world when, when things go a little it's crazy? Both, it's both. I mean, I, I mean, yes, I try and hide because I'm the sole performer most of the time. Yeah. I mean, I have, like, accomplices and stuff on the show, but, like, yeah, I'm leading the, the pack, and the show's popular, and people do recognize me, and it's amazing how, through the use of disguises, I'm able to bury the lead for a while and get someone to be fooled, even if they've heard of the show. Right. Um, but, but the special effects are also used in the show in the pranks themselves. I mean, you know... 
you know, I had to create the illusion of a meteorite cracking open and a live alien coming out and then morphing into kittens. That was like one segment. It's like the most popular segment we've ever done. And it was that's special effects. And, you know, that was literally just special effects, magic and um and and elements of horror and and people really like it the fans are and it's funny how that comes up for me like there's a lot of pranks that we definitely pray in the world of spooky and horror because people have a visceral and this goes back to your original question like why horror people have a visceral reaction and a a latent uh readiness to believe in that you know right. like as as smart as we think we are and as like we don't I don't believe in ghosts I don't believe in voodoo I don't believe in this and that and then you know I come by and orchestrate this prank where you know, we're at a an antique shop and a bizarre little statue falls and breaks. And then the statue next to it suddenly looks like it's in mourning when it wasn't before. You go, what is, go- where did those statues come from? Did right. you see that face change? Can that happen? And you go, I th- all right. It's almost like it proves like, you know what? I always wondered if that could be real. And I think now I see that it is real. Like people do believe in that stuff more right. so than if we pull off a, a trick that's like a science you know sometimes I'll do a trick where like say a bowling ball full-size bowling ball fits inside of a flat box right and I'll convince them that we've come up with a new technology that reverses the air inside of a box that can make something and that that people will believe in that stuff too there's that and there's also the voodoo stuff the scarier stuff you know we had a, a you know we had a plant that assimilated and bloomed a human head in, in the show that was like a total special effects magic trick with a real live person's disembodied head right in front of somebody talking to them and this season I have somebody who is there's a raven in a cage that ends up shape-shifting into a person and they're wearing like black sclera contact lenses and they burst out of this box totally naked and freak the guy out I and mean, it's like pretty we're it's like really heavy horror handed heavy handed horror well I think I think it's interesting the the fact that people I think crave the unknown because totally. there's so much in our day-to-day uh, lives that we have the explanation for. Yeah. And so when you kind of dangle that carrot and give someone a reason to think outside of the box. Right. It's sort of, I think I'm a, like a, a reason to get to think outside of the box. Like you right. said, I'm craving it. And it's funny you say that because I have this like rule, you know, with the, the show, I try and it's really easy. It's easy to scare someone, you right. know, like I guess you could say. I mean, and I could certainly do pranks where somebody comes in and chops someone's head off, a murderer bursts out of the closet and slices someone's head off. And it might look like a real magic trick, like the head gets sliced off and the person's just going to scream and run out. But that's not that's not the goal. Like, right. like, yes, you can create that visceral reaction. But like you said, people crave the unknown. I always try and make it something that in its own way is maybe creepy and terrifying, but so it, it ignites the curiosity and fascination that you can't leave the room because you want to know what's going on. I, you know, I, I think of that often when I watch your show because there are these elements where uh, it is truly bordering into the unknown or something that clearly is like unsettling the person. But I don't think I can recall a moment in any of the tricks that I've seen on your show where someone has turned and bolted. They're almost. Oh, re- no, it happens. I'm sure it has. Because we play on that line. And and we show those in specials sometimes, right. but literally that's the game though. I right. mean, and the game is how do you make it curious? You you want to be able to they they might want to run away because you know we just had a violin and we put it in a violin case and then all of a sudden smoke starts coming out of the case. We open it and there's no more violin and then we hear the sound of a violin from the other room. Right. Like that, do you want to run or do you want to be like, what's going? on? I need to know what's happening. I want to go see if that's a violin playing or do you do you depending on the person, go, I, I'm done with this. I'm out of here. I'm leaving. Well, it's kind of like the horror movie slash Scooby-Doo of it all. Because, you know, when you're growing up and you're watching horror movies or you watch horror movies with people who are not as uh, into that world and, you know, they're in the haunted house or they hear the sound and they go right. and investigate. My dad's always when it's like, well, why don't they just leave? No, it's so funny you say that. Literally, that is the thing. Like that, And that's why maybe in some horror movies it doesn't feel right. right. And, it's, and in others it can because we do. We're curious. You do want to know what that sound was. Well, I've, I've even been that person. Like, don't go towards the sound. But then in my apartment by myself, like something will fall in the kitchen. I'm like, well, I better go check. Yep. And so and you're like, I'm being that guy. I am that. I'm, yep. I know I'm that guy. Like, yeah. I'll be critical of it when I'm watching something. But it, it's I think that what you are really revealing uh, with with uh, the work that you're doing is this kind of uh, place in the human mind where we are curious about yeah. about these things. And 
you don't necessarily want to turn away. I, I think of, uh, as cheesy of a reference as it is, I think of like uh, in Mulder's office on the X-Files. He's got that poster that says, I want to believe. Yes. And I think people do, on some level, want to believe. Yes, absolutely. They do. And I think that that line that you're teetering between, do I run out of the room, do I not, um, it goes back to, because another thing I thought about when you said, again, the t- question at the top of the show, why horror? And in I think horror for people... It, it it it's so powerful to ignite that visceral reaction right. in 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 movies and when people are scared. But when I think again about like Freddy Krueger, how I was rooting for Freddy Krueger, and other times I'd be scared in other films that scared me. Right, you know, Creepshow Two, The Raft, that blobby stuff on the water, like just annihilated me. I was terrified of that. Uh, there's just some things that really got me. Right, you know, and skipping ahead or wherever but like just speaking of queer horror too bug crush have you seen that short i love bug crush. i love bug crush and that for me is right in that world of like i'm curious what did that feel like oh my god it's totally creepy that's horrific it's awesome it's, and it scares me viscerally but i think with horror and in that same line i think we're talking about fight or flight right the fight or flight response and also this predator and prey you know like in some horror movies I watch, like Return of the Living Dead Part 2 actually scared right. the heck out of me. And um, it, it, in those instances, I'm the prey. But in instances when I watch Freddy, I'm almost on the side of the predator. And, you know, like I, I teeter back and forth. Like, am I going to be scared or am I going to be with this, excited about it? Or am I in the room or am I out of the room? But... It does go back and it allows in different instances to be both predator and prey in the face of if something scary. Well, I think that what you're talking about is something that we discuss on the show uh, quite regularly, but in uh, very different contexts. I don't think I've ever heard anyone phrase it quite like this. I'm really fascinated by this particular avenue of discussion. But one of the reasons, and I'm glad you brought up queer horror, uh, that we frequently return to this uh, idea of the queer connection to horror is that sense of otherness. And I mentioned it a little bit earlier. And I think that, uh, you know, sometimes otherness in a horror movie manifests as maybe the monster, as a so- like the the social outcast, or in the case of Freddy, many, many, many guests and I have talked about how Freddy Krueger in some capacity is like a drag character, because totally. he's this heightened, almost Broadway-esque Absolutely. character, and even though we know these awful things about him, we kind of crave that theatricality. But then in another way, you look at someone like Lori in Halloween, who just wants to belong to her friend group, and feels on the outside, and even though these are people she populates her world with, she doesn't quite feel right. as popular or cool as the other girls and there's that sense of otherness like I just want to belong yeah. and so you I can see uh, allying yourself with Freddie because of theatricality yeah. but like understanding Lori because she's on the outside sure. and being terrified of Michael or uh, and, and that's just what I think is really interesting about what you're saying is that and never more so than in Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Right. Like talking about, you know, I'm sure you the covered qu- this before, like, you know, being the queerest horror movie of all time, it's been called. And I, that was, I think I may, I can't even remember, but I may have seen part two before I saw part one. I still can't remember. It, but I watched them very young. And part two just got me right, you know, resonated right into my soul in a way that I wouldn't even understand until later in life. And I'm so fascinated that those the 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 like you say the sense of being an outcast but with you can you know break it down in Nightmare on Elm Street 2 that Freddy Krueger is sort of like his gay self coming to haunt him and he's trying to make out with his girlfriend in the cabana and Freddy's tongue comes out and he runs away like almost like a gay guy kissing a girl in a closet and being like I can't do this you know I have something else inside of me that's saying I can't do this right. you know, like and you know, he runs right to the bedroom of his hot friend uh-huh. yeah. and I I was first of all I was just I thought he was really hot in that movie and he's in his underwear and it was like really <laughs> sexy right. and I loved it uh, but I didn't realize the layers that were really affecting me on Exactly what you're talking about, too, right. is that, you know, he the, he was an outcast. And Peter, my husband, Peter Stickles, and I, like, argue about this all the time because he hates Nightmare 2. He doesn't hate Nightmare 2, but he he loves women, you know, heroines in movies. And he just hates that they had a guy playing that role. And right. I just, I love it. You know, I love that it was almost like an outing. Like, let, it was almost like, you know, let's have a boy do it. And... 
how wonderful that was. I'm all for shaking up the natural order of things. And I, I think that uh, Nightmare 2, when it came out, certainly was maligned because it was very different than the first film. But now, through the lens of time looking at it and a lot of the social constructs and, and, and layers of the film, it's it's rich. And it's like, yeah. it, it is so gay. Oh, yeah. Um, but it's also just a movie, I think, that if you want to, I don't, but if someone wants to do a read of it where they divorce it from the queerness, it's just all about that struggle of adolescence where you're still figuring yourself out. Yep. And Freddie does... It's like the proverbial puberty. Exactly. You know... I, I think that people struggle because it's like the one movie where Freddie doesn't necessarily haunt dreams. Well, and but, remember now, we have to just say that when part two came out, it wasn't that big of a diversion from the series because there was no series correct yeah, yeah two was its own thing at the time and that was like at the time of a lot of transformation and also possession movies which i i have a i have a real strong response to that like I, the exorcist 2 was right. another movie and i haven't seen this since i was a kid so that might be terrible i don't even remember but i remember <laughs> loving it because i love that the guy was being possessed right and uh, anything where someone would transform the fly is my one of my all-time favorite monster movies if that can be called a monster movie um, oh, absolutely and i think that there's definitely the fly is a pandemic movie that's uh, made during the kind of height of the aids crisis so yeah. there's this whole like queer read of that movie that many scholars bicker about that's well uh, wait you mean goldblum's fly goldblum's um, fly cronenberg yeah but not the original fly. not no, the original right right fly. No, no, no. have you ever read the short story the original short story is v- completely different i have not and it's I, great it's short and wonderful and totally i mean they really diverted when they went into the whole you know the the way that, that you know it as right cronenberg's fly it's but i'm a big fan of the uh the vincent price starring fly as well i think it's it's one of those classic monster movies when yeah. i think of that you know black and white projection era of drive-in cinema yeah that's one of those movies that i would love to to see in a theater there's yeah, me too. Just something epic about it. Uh, so since we're, we're talking about the, the queer connection to it all, uh, taking it back to that initial interest in special effects and then uh, discovering magic, do you feel that part of your interest in that world also stemmed from your own queer identity and managing that at all? Stemmed from? I don't know. Stem, I don't. Well, maybe stemmed isn't the word. No, I mean, I, I mean it's an interesting thought. I yeah. actually have never reflected on whether it stemmed, because I don't even know where my love of horror and magic stems right. from. It's like that there is something to, you know, the, well, when we talk about magicians, it's funny, like, you, you know, some kids are just into magic. It's like a bug that bites them and they're into it, you right. know, and the same with horror. It's like, is it hereditary? Is it there's something that just some kids, you know, my manager is, he has two daughters and one of them just loves all the villains and characters uh, right. in, in movies. And it's like, she's one years old or two years old. And she, I don't know, sorry, Kyle. But like, um, <laughs> you know, she she just is drawn to the evil parts of those things. And it's like, well, that's kind of scary. But like, right. what does what that and where does it come from? I don't know. But the, the connections to it, the resonation, for example, in like Nightmare on Elm Street 2 and how that hit me in a way that I didn't even know it, um, there's, there's, there is, is real. Right. And there is definitely... Uh, links to it in the same world. I mean, you know, we're getting into now like secrets and like hiding a secret right. and having something people don't know about, you know, and growing up queer was one of the, uh, you know, being queer is one of those things that you don't wear it on your forehead. Right. So there is a, an element of like either revealing it, you know, coming out or, but you're carrying something that's invisible. So it's kind of like a secret and it's a mystery and um, there was a lot of really hot hooking up early in my world of like not coming out and other people that I met who were not out like in high school and right. we would hook up and that was some secret in the closet in the dark. And I literally mean like in the in, closet, in the closet <laughs> hooking up like that was shrouded in mystery. And there's like a real charge to that. Right. You know, in a way that's and I kind of like, you know, notice how that, you know, I almost miss that. That that uh, lack of naughtiness or underground yeah. sense, yeah. There is there is a whole kind of generation uh, of of kind of the fumbling in the dark when you're still figuring yeah. yourself out. But n- and get this now, so maybe there's something to that predator prey. Because I was thinking about the image of when I was talking, like predator prey, and where does that come from? And why do we love horror? And um, 
you know, like when a kid likes to be kind of chased because, you know, a parent or an uncle or whatever is like acting like a monster. Like, ah, and the kid's right. like, ah, and they get scared. Right. And then the kid likes to turn around back and go, ah, back. It's like this little dance back and forth. Like, I'm getting scared and now I'm being scary. I'm getting scared right. and I'm being scary. And that's that predator prey. Am I Freddy killing the person or am I scared of the blob on the lake? Like all that back and forth, top, bottom. I don't know right. what's going on here. Like there is some <laughs> back and forth connection there. Yeah, I think there's a lot to unpack there. In a way, it's also kind of the discussion of taking what you're running from and and, and turning it around and reclaiming it. That's a beautiful it, thing. It, yeah, it, that, that's not even queer. That's just wonderful, like spiritual life. Of course, absolutely. like absorb the monster, and that's what Nancy learns at the end of Nightmare on Elm Street One, isn't it? It really is. And then, of course, the sequels just. Do you know I went when I when I got to meet uh, Heather Lenningcamp for the first time or the only time actually I was with Peter we were uh, at a comic book shop or wherever she was going to be signing stuff I had just gone in the day before and, oh no I didn't even go in I I had seen this dermatologist once that like did like a uh, fruit acid thing on my face you ever get like a facial with like fruit acid I have it? a lot of questions because I don't even know what that is okay yeah. <laughs> right, well like it's just whatever it's like you, you get a peel a chemical peel okay and it's like with fruit acid and they put it on your face and it tingly and it's supposed to like remove the dead skin layers so it was fun and I had it done at this dermatologist one time I had a facial and they did it with like a fruit acid peel and my my skin felt like glass afterwards it was so smooth and so amazing so I'm like I could order this stuff online and do it myself so I ordered this like glycolic acid and I did it the same way they did it at the dermatologist and like literally burned my face like oh my, my face was burned red pink and almost like slimy in parts and that was the day that I met Heather Lanningham I met Heather with a big burnt Freddy Krueger face. I was going to say, did she think you were cosplaying as Freddy? <laughs> Maybe I was. Maybe I was, like again, like in my own world, not even knowing that I did it on purpose. Subconscious. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Peter said, um, I have an idea. How about you don't put acid on your face? You know, I think it's strong advice. It's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, tell me a little bit uh, for uh, people who may not know about the shift from, you know, this initial interest in special effects makeup. You're watching these horror movies. You're taking an active interest in that to magic. What was the pivot point uh, that magic was was the path that you were like, this is something I want to do? Yeah. Um, magic or performing magic uh, has in it you know, I, I was sort of developing my, or or at least coming into my own, realizing that I really like to perform. Like, right. that is its own separate world. You know, like, you, making special effects, being interested in special effects, being interested in magic is one thing. But, but performing started to blossom. And I think it was in seventh grade doing... Um, I was in show choir in seventh grade and my I came home for the first time with like the sparkly cummerbund and the armband and the gloves and the bow tie and I was super excited about it like right, right any gay boy would be and I was just I remember putting on the whole costume in front of my mom and being like check this out isn't this great and she she sort of like nodded her head and said like well looks like you're a born entertainer and I remember that being like I, I think about that a lot it was like almost the time my mom realized that and I remember that being like, oh, wow, born entertainer. And magic, to answer your question, magic was this wonderful vehicle to have a, a, a reason to stand up in front of a crowd and engage them and talk. And it's mm -hmm. like it was of my own interest in special effects and weird things that work when you don't know how they work. And so there I got to be the, the host of this moment of magic. It was just a real perfect fit. And I found my love of communicating with people and hosting and, and being a, a personality by having these magic tricks to show people. And um, from that, I kind of like, well, I went to NYU when I first went to college. I literally went to NYU. Like, I'm just going to be the next David Copperfield. I'm going to go and learn everything I can about acting and voice and dance and speech. And I went to musical theater first, not because I ever wanted to be in musicals, but because I wanted to. They had a really great program at NYU where the musical theater program, I thought, gave you such a diversity in the different classes you would take that that would make me the ultimate magician. Like right. I could make the best magic show in the world by knowing how to dance and speak and move and act and all this stuff. And and then I diverted from there to experimental theater and then finally film and TV but uh, in NYU. But I... Uh, uh, I... In going to NYU and, and studying, thinking that I was just going to be the next magician is when I started to 
get like, wait, you know, I really like when I took the acting classes, I really was funny and I really liked being funny in just like comedic scenes and doing plays. And I started getting into stand up comedy and I was like, wait, maybe magic isn't, you know, the only thing. And then I, I kind of still I have this love hate relationship with magic in in a way uh, where, you know, magic kind of calls up. You, you, people think of magicians a lot and you think of like some clown or dumb uncle or bad you know magic doesn't have the best reputation so right. like there's it was hard to be like I'm gonna go to Hollywood and I'm gonna be an actor and I'm an actor and a magician it's like casting hears that and it's like oh okay a magician and actor it just sounds weird um, or I, I actually have I, I don't know if it sounds weird I mean I should be the you know I hope I'm making a stand for making that cool and like I right. still worry about my legacy going on like can I do other projects or is it always going to be, well, did you bring a trick with you today? And like, it's like, it's not always magic what I do. Hopefully there's more. But when you moved to LA, you started building a very healthy resume in TV and film. And, uh, I think that, you know, when you look across some of the shows you were in CSI Miami or shows like Wizards of Waverly Place or the newsroom, these are not small programs. Right. And that's based on acting. And thank you, Michael. Uh, I, I think that uh, there was also probably like a whole uh, generation or a group of fans who knew you for that before they even knew you were involved with magic, even though you were doing magic all along as well. It's, you know, it's so funny. I had this moment happen. I just I was just on my friend's show from from my friend from high school. Mark Dworkin is the executive producer of Night Squad on Nickelodeon. OK. And uh, I'm, I'm a guest on that show and I came in to do that show. And, you know, some of the cast and some of the crew kind of and this still like bugs me out that they're like, oh my gosh, we know your show. And, you know, like I have this, like every now and then when I pop into some actual professional situation, I still haven't believed that I'm a professional in this industry yet. But anyhow, when I like go and, uh, and, and I'd meet like the director or something, he's like, oh, I know your show. We love your show. So it still blows my mind. I'm like, oh my God, and, like people know who I am. But I remember there were a lot of people who were like, wow, Carbonaro Effect, Carbonaro Effect, wow, you do that magic show, you do that magic show. And the, um, the costume designer of the show, she's like, my son loves your show. And she's like, she was sort of, she was really friendly, and she, she took, talked to me about, but she wasn't like bitten by the bug of like, wow, you're from the Carbonara effect. She's like, my son really loves the show. I'd love you to bring in a head chef for him and blah, blah, blah. And then the next day when I came to set, she was like, wait a minute, were you on Wizards of Waverly Place before your TV show? And I was like, yeah. She's like, did you play that, the, the, uh, the genie inside that box that like moved around like a robot? And I was like, yeah, because I did all this like physical movement for this role, like moving around like a robot, which I do. Right. Just for myself, my own entertainment. <laughs> and she like changed to being so enamored and excited by me. Like she like fanned out over the fact that I had been on Wizards of Waverly Place and the way I performed that role. And it was like really satisfying because like I was like, oh, my gosh, she likes me for me and not just my Carbonara Effect TV show. Not that my Carbonara Effect TV show isn't me, but like right. it was an interesting like it really struck me that someone was like, wait a minute. You're that guy. I'm like, yeah, that guy. Not even the this guy, but the that guy. And I was like, wow. Well, I think it's just really cool, too, when you have multifaceted outlets for your career. The thing that maybe uh, uh, draws one person is not what draws another. But right. there's that equal interest. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things I mentioned in the intro to the show is that you were in uh, a, a, a kind of hit in the, the queer community. Yes. Uh, called Another Gay Movie. Another Gay Movie. Uh, a movie that you won an Outfest Acting Award for. Yes. And uh, let, talk to me a little bit about because that movie yeah. uh, has something of like a cult momentum behind it. They mm-hmm. made a sequel. It's on frequently listed on these lists of like the, the best gay movies of the last, you know, 25 yeah. years. Uh, and just, you know, that's a very different fan base of the Carbonaro effect. Yeah. And have you ever kind of like had this incident where... Uh, people kind of discover that you made this after the fact i have gotten away with this scot-free i don't you know i don't know i oh i never thought that i would be able to do a movie like another gay movie and then have like a family friendly tv magic show right i mean and i'm not that i didn't think you should be able to do that because i used to like i used to you know think like you know, like Robin Williams would do children's movies and has a family following and then his stand up. You don't bring your kids to that show. Like, sure. so you can have this back and forth. But it, it was hard for me um, 
you know, take, doing another gay movie was a risk in that world. It was like, you know, and I remember Graham Norton, who uh, played my teacher and love interest in that movie, uh, my crush. I was right. a student who was in love with the teacher. And, uh, you know, he was even like, I don't, you know, he even says the same thing. He's like, I just got away with that movie. I did that movie. Because it's really raunchy and it's really like, you right. know, out there. But that movie, I would never, I would, I mean, I it. For me, it didn't matter. I was so all about that movie. It was, I totally, I read that script. I was laughing hysterically. I knew what it was, what the point, what it was trying to make. It was taking like an American pie and flipping it on its head, flipping it on its head. And was like, what if it was just a gay group of boys who were trying to lose their virginity? You've seen that movie a million times. Like the guys are trying to get laid. And like, what if it, it was in a world that was gay and it wasn't like a coming out story and it wasn't about like, I'm struggling with being queer. It was just like this world where we were queer and it's a movie where four guys are trying to get laid before the end of the summer. And there was the nerd and there was the jock and there was the, you know, every boy next door that I played. And there was a really flamboyant one played by Jonah Blackman. And uh, I loved it, and that was my, that was maybe that was the, that was the best summer of my life when we shot that movie. I mean, it was incredible. It was amazing, and I I remember crying like I, I I had a boyfriend at the time, and I was I was like I'm having such a great time, and I was telling him about it. We were in the middle of shooting, and I was like crying, and he was like, "Why are you crying?" And I was like, "Because I don't know if I'll ever get to do something like this again." Because I was like. Here I was in L.A., the lead of a movie, right. and I couldn't believe it, and I was having such a great time, and I, this industry is just, you know, you never know what's going to happen, and I just remember really taking that in and cherishing um, that movie, um, and I I left that movie with a lot of what I heard from it, because there was, a, a you know, the fear of, you know, is this going to mark me as whatever like you know i won't be able to do anything else afterwards because you know it's a raunchy movie and um and it turns out no right i really had a wonderful experience with that i mean i didn't think i was going to get away with so to speak and then, like what is there to get away with let me clear that up i don't right. mean there's nothing really to get away with but it's kind of you know like in the you know the world of like can you do a movie like that and then move on and do something else i'm still like wow and i do have people who come to you know, they'll come to my live performance magic show and then at the end they'll come up with like an, another gay movie DVD to sign. And I do have a lot of like crossover fans in that world. But um, yeah, I lost my train of thought. I don't know what we were talking about. No, I well, I think what we were uh, talking about, uh, what, what you were bringing up is, uh, especially when another gay movie was made, it, uh, queer cinema, and still to this day, it sort of exists in a nebulous place in, right. in, in the greater world of movie making. And the idea that that might have been it, right? Your career and your talent proved that that was not the case. That's lovely thought. I mean, that's nice. I I think that I remember after another gay movie came out, I was getting a lot of a lot of people were talking about me being funny mm-hmm. and bold and daring, and more so than. Uh, you know, it was really nice to be and and to win an award for a comedy movie like that. It right. was really I was totally surprised and very proud of the world in its state to be able to uh, to the, to see that thing fly in the way that it would and and to think that on some level, someone or even maybe myself wouldn't take on a movie like that because of a fear that it may mar you for later or not be able to, you know, do something. Is is terrifying because the, the 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 chord that it struck when we like went to festivals and the guys in our community who like understood where all these where all these jokes were coming from and the 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 sense of like the explosion of laughter over the jokes that we were playing and the moment we were creating was so important and so special to people myself and to the audience that to think that you know I'm so proud of myself and happy that you know. I would take it on. I mean, I, I really thought, and I, you know, I still think, you know, I, and I'm at the stage right now in my career that if something else came out that was like maybe on the iffy level, like I'm all about it. I'm ready to do, you know, I would love to be like, you know, when, when, when um, uh, Anthony Perkins was in Psycho, right. he was, he was a teen idol. Right. So that was a really unexpected turn from to be a, you know, cross-dressing murderer sorry for spoiler alert <laughs> but um but i would jump on something like that now i like and i i, I like um, you know i think back to another gay movie and i remember like you know that the guy that i was then was like you know i was about being bold and being out there and being you know 
like, sure, do I go on Twitter and like say, does everybody remember another game movie? And like, sh- no, like, you know, because I don't think it's like going to strike a chord with the crowds I'm drawing right now to my right. live show and everything like that. But I don't shun it and I don't, um, it's, a ba- it's a balance back and forth. I mean, I I don't, I still think like, I, I, I'm riding this really cool family friendly vibe right now that's really nice and I enjoy it very much. But I also, I have like all these other acts and dreams and things that I do that I will, um, that are not going away. Well, one thing I do want to say before we move on from the topic of another game movie, and, and you uh, referenced it a little bit when you were talking about the script and, and just the way the film is set up. Uh, you know as well as I do that there was sort of an era of, of gay movies where it, the, the majority of gay movies were coming out stories. Totally. And uh, we needed those, of course. We needed that kind of representation. But uh, raunchy though it may be, one of the, the great successes of another gay movie and one of the reasons I think it had the impact and why it's so important and continues to live with, with queer audiences is exactly what you said. You told a story about these four guys who we know from the onset are gay and they're living their lives. It's not about them necessarily claiming their identity as gay men. They're gay from the beginning. And we, for the first time in a, in a larger way, we're getting this movie that was giving us a slice of gay life that just was allowing people to be gay. Absolutely. And you're talking about this group of like taking it to the festivals and, and the, the, the audience like laughing and connecting with it because they're like, finally, in some way, I'm getting to see myself reflected and not necessarily just the struggle of announcing myself to the world. And beyond comedy, that kind of movie is so important, I think. And uh, yeah, I, I'm so, I, I think that's so great that it's part of your back catalog because uh, what too. a way to announce and yourself to the world. Really. I, and shout out to Todd Stevens, the director and writer of Another Gay Movie. Um, he's awesome. And that was visionary. I mean, it really was. Like yeah. you said, I mean, it's like, it's a silly movie, you could say, but it's, it was completely wild that it was, yet, like you said, you know, here was a whole queer audience getting to watch American Pie, but their version. Right. And it was, uh, it's so special. It really is. Yeah, I have a lot of people who write to me and say that, you know, it helped them coming out and it was very important to them and that's awesome. I mean, I'm really proud of that. And then, as you said, uh, you know, your, your career pivots again into this space where you're doing magic on The Tonight Show and going on, on programs, and then all, now you have your own show. And uh, what I love is that uh, that thread back to that movie, as you said, people are coming with DVDs to your live shows. You're traveling around the country. Uh, and I want to talk to you a little bit about life on the road because yeah. that uh, is a very big uh, portion of what you do these days, going mm-hmm. out there. Uh just talk to me a little bit about that. What's that like? And have you had any like unique encounters out in the world with uh, taking your taking your acts to people? Um, what like in a queer way? Uh, well, if you have a queer well, answer, I mean, but I mean, just I do. Like, I get you know. I've had fans come to the meet and greet who, um, you know, I had this uh, who I just had this one fan in Michigan who brought me a letter and a couple little gifts, and the letter was really, really beautiful. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, transgender and they talked about how my presence and me being out and talking about my husband and the joy that I bring with my TV show had helped them through some really trying times of anxiety and uh, you know it really was touching and I uh, I cherish that you know and I because I honestly I Look, I'm. I mean, I'm running a business, and I do worry about. You know, I perform in the middle of America, and I don't want. I I get nervous about being too political on my Twitter feeds and stuff. And there's times when I mean, this world, I just can't help it, and I just gotta say something. Right. Um. And other times, you know, I I don't know whether whether or not to reserve or what. But I I make it a point to, and even even in the TV show. You know, like uh, we do this show that has facts come up and I'll talk about like, you know, the, you know, that's my husband, Peter, in the background right there on a brochure. We'll talk about that. And I, I talk about, hey, is there, you know, I'll, I'll tweet about being married. And I've, I've had people directly ask me like there was somebody on Twitter the other day was like, can I ask you a question? Are you gay? And I wrote back, yes, and married uh, to my husband, Peter Stickles. And I and, uh, you know, I'm I think that's important because, right. I you know, I'm looking and I'm like, no, he was like, no offense, but are you gay? And I was like, no offense at all. And yes, I am. And uh, I just think that that's, you know, that's who I've always wanted to be. I know right. I always remember, you know, 
thinking that I would love to be somebody who was in the industry and had a great, you know, program, program. I had like great work and also wasn't hiding. Like I don't want to be hiding. And right. I, like I, I love being able to be out and be that, you know, role model for people. Honestly, what I, I appreciate is because uh, when I asked the question, I was just wondering if, you know, because I know that fans, when, when you're out on the road, can sometimes be very enthusiastic. Right. But this answer, I think, was much more uh, important because to talk about the impact that visibility has in this space. Yeah. And we frequently on the show, because it is a show about the intersection of queer identity and horror, usually talk about just what you know that visibility as it relates to genre but as we know there is no one kind of queer person and to have different representation in different spaces and if that allows people to feel more welcome yeah and to know that they are valid and important in this world then that's the kind of story i want to hear because that's the important you know thing yeah Uh, yeah and i have um you know i like to be you know, I, I, I've had people who I've gotten letters b- back to who said, like, I used to watch your show. And then I just watched that episode where you said that your husband was on the, uh, you know, uh, the brochure in the background. And you know what? I'm not going to watch your show anymore. We don't need that to be rubbed in our face. And I was right. like, oh, my God. And then I think I'm like, well, good. Don't watch the show then. I mean, really? So, you know, there's that. And then there's also but maybe there's the one kid who's writing to me and saying, are you gay? And I say yes. And he's probably like, oh, my God, that's wow like because i think i might be gay and if he's gay then maybe things will be okay then yeah screw the other guy i've always felt it's okay to lose viewers or listeners or readers because of hate because you're likely going to gain double that in love because there are people who need it yeah and the person who's leaving it for that reason they they're never going to want to connect or try and change or grow right so yeah and this isn't me standing on top of a soapbox screaming about you know queer rights this was just me being like that's my husband in the background it's like you don't like you don't have the right to say that well why because well i didn't want to know that well all right sorry (laughs) (sighs) it's so preposterous yeah so you know one of the things that well not one of the things one but one of the big things that your work is all about is making the impossible seem real and uh, making things come true that someone who walks in and uh, does not know what they're about to encounter was not even expecting. In your own life and career, is there something yet that you have not made manifest that you want to do? Yeah, many. Yeah, many. Um, you want to know what they are? <laughs> well, I I um, right now lately been thinking about like a big... Doug Henning, wild, large illusion, magic, other realm extravaganza, mm-hmm. like a Broadway show. Um, I want to manifest that. I'm working on that. And oddly enough, is also a horror film. Oh, yeah? You know, working on putting together that may or may not include like elements of some hidden camera along with it. Um, I'd like to make those come true. Is that not enough? No, that's great. Those are hard. Those are hard. Yeah. But, well, uh, as I'm sure uh, you can attest, anything that's worth doing is always a little hard. Oh, yeah. And it should be. I always like to ask guests, uh, because we are definitely in devotion to cinema and horror films, uh, or just films in general, what have you seen recently that inspires you? Um, well, in the genre of horror. Yeah, or or if, or if you've seen a movie recently that you're just really all about and want to shout out. The favorite cool. was awesome. Beautiful Boys, really great. Um, let me think. Uh, in the horror genre, gosh, you know, it's funny when I think of like, you know, I, I don't know if I've seen any recent horror that's good. What oh, what I've seen recently though that's horror. Like this was my first year this past season seeing Christmas Evil. Oh yeah, and that blew my mind. I had no idea. I watch a lot of movies with Peter, right. and uh, he likes them all the way from the trashiest, worst, badly produced and acted movies uh, all the way up to great, you know, films. And I really found Christmas Evil to be an art film. It was awesome. It's. I, I love Christmas Evil. Uh, I, I think that it is really a masterful 
piece of cinema and it's it's sort of unfairly I think lumped in with the like killer Santa movies although it has right. an element of that there is just something about uh, this it's a movie directed by this man Lewis Jackson and it's all about uh, a, a toy maker who loses his job and still wants to give a good uh, Christmas to the neighborhood children but he goes about it in maybe a little more menacing a way than he ought and how the neighborhood reacts to that yeah uh, but I think what I really like about Christmas Evil is it's it's uh, not just a horror movie it's a statement on class yeah. uh, and and just social constructs uh, there's that scene where he's out there uh, dressed as Santa Claus and all the people leave the church and these people are leaving a church supposed right. to be this pious activity and they laugh at him and I always think about how that is is really just an expose on on Western culture and how yeah. like uh, we have put commercialism into Christmas as opposed to what it's supposed to be about. yeah uh, so I love that like you you uh, gravitated towards well that. it also I mean I think it had a real there's this weird like almost kind of perverse uh, cross-dressing element to it that he like uses the Santa suit as this drag right killer ca- character and also um, and not that cross-dressing is perverse at all but it like you know it 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 had that it if 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 it was to be you know like they were moving like in other words psycho it's like he right. dresses up as a woman and kills people it has that but as Santa and it was sort of his like drag well I think drag is probably where uh, the best comparison because when you you talk to a lot of queens they talk about how they don't really feel like they come alive until they become the character yeah and uh, in this movie it is definitely Santa drag he's yeah. a sort of downtrodden guy who doesn't feel like he he rates but as Santa he's somebody yeah and there's something really compelling about that well you know what really got me about the movie was that it was not um, it, it was nonfiction in right. a, I mean it was not nonfiction but th- this right. could actually have happened right you know this guy, dressed up as Santa and he was going out and murdering people but then when people saw him and if he just wandered into a party remember the scene he wanders into the party and he's this stranger just coming into a party to play with the kids and play with the people and everyone just oh it's Santa he's here it's the holidays yay he's just accepted and it's like he just slips through the cracks doing these terrible things because he's Santa and Santa's okay. Well, there's a whole scene in the movie where the adults kind of realize what's going on and the children protect him and I think that's so... Yeah. Because that's such a such a, a, a precarious situation, right? Like if you like, no, that's a bad man. You are breaking the illusion of Santa Claus, right? But for to allow the children to be near him is also an element of danger. Yeah, uh, you're right. It's it's so like the more I'm thinking about it, how compelling um, it can happen. Yeah. It is uh, on the record as John Waters' favorite Christmas movie. Yes, I heard that after. I was very excited to hear that, too, after I had fallen in love with it. And it kind of makes sense. It's, sure. It's got all of those things. that It I, validated my own love. Isn't that weird? Isn't it, There's something about John Waters, I think, as a statesman of uh, the queer community and just sort of like cult cinema in general, yeah. that if he says something, oh, this is, uh, I, I love Mommy Dearest for this reason. We're all like, yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, no, totally. Yeah. I was like so excited when Peter said that. He's like, it's John Waters' favorite Christmas movie. And I'm like, oh my God, I, I won. <laughs> the greatest validation. I, I, You know what? I, I choose to live in a world that John Waters just mentally is is my president. I, I want, I would much prefer that. Yeah. But uh, he talks about the sexiness of, uh, you know, secret um, hookups. Yes, too. he does. Yeah. There's a full circle moment. Uh, John Waters definitely has, I think, in um, multiple uh, multiples of his books, has, has uh, said that he misses kind of that element of danger. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And I think that uh, I, I get it in, in 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 different ways. There there is something. A lot of queer history comes from living outside of the mainstream and in some cases that meant the law or outside of the norms of society and so much of what our culture is built on uh, comes from that element of subversiveness not even necessarily because we were being it, trying to be subversive it just happened that way and we had to embrace that culture that when the the pendulum has sort of shifted 
it kind of does feel strange. Like I think about it all the time in relation to drag itself, because drag was for many years kind of you know this this underground thing, this punk rock thing that you would see like at a bar at the at late hours, and it was something that many in society would look down their nose at. And now we can go to the L.A. Convention Center and see a hundred thousand people, mostly moms and their daughters, going to see drag queens who, you know, fifteen years ago. Uh, they, sure. they would have tr- probably tried to steer their children away on the street. Yep. And I, I think it's just so interesting how w- our culture kind of was born out of transgression merely because we were living our lives. Yeah. Yeah. I think, well, you know, it's funny because d- drag, as you say, I've almost I've been thinking like what what could be my drag character not even drag in the world of like dressing up like a woman but almost back to like Freddy Krueger being a drag character right. like an alter or alter ego and uh, uh, yeah I don't know I I want I I I am envious of that ability to put on a mask I mean it's Batman isn't it, it is. it's Batman's drag I've always said superheroes are a form of drag I I think too the idea that. Uh, we, we have kind of a rigid cultural idea that drag is just gender illusion, but it's right. really that curation of a persona that is larger than life, and it's an exaggerated... Elvira is a drag character. Yeah. Pee-wee Herman is mm-hmm. a drag character. Uh, Freddie, as we said, and I think... That, yeah, Batman, certainly. Yeah. When you're a boring uh, millionaire who has yeah. to you know put on a rubber suit and go out and live the nightlife... Yeah. Or even if it even before the rubber, it was tights, you know. It was tights. Yeah, yeah. I'm like I have a vision of Adam West doing that little dance in my my head. No, no boring times with Batman. To no, be had. no. I was such a fan of Batman and Robin. I I I built a Chris O'Donnell Robin suit when I was in college and was Robin for Halloween. I think, so Halloween is kind of a form of drag for me. I guess, you know, like I go crazy, crazy on Halloween. And I think that uh, I've seen a lot of uh, your looks for Halloween, and that kind of brings it back to your love of effects makeup. I've seen you do so many different like effects yeah. looks. Did you not recently, I think we can talk about it now because it's after the fact, yeah. uh, you were somewhere for Halloween and did a very um, uh, intensive makeup look so you could go out in the street, right? Oh, yeah. I, yeah, well, I've... I've, I've do that all the time. I mean, I was uh, I did a Michael Jackson on myself that was incredible, and a uh, Edward Scissorhands. I did a Nosferatu two years ago that was you would never know who I was. It was right. amazing, and yeah, I went around. Um, I walked around. It was funny because I was we were at I can't remember if it was Monster Palooza or the other one that goes on. Maybe it was Monster Palooza. Uh, I. I bought this rubber or silicone mask mm-hmm. of uh, like a plastic surgery disaster woman, and I put it on at the convention. And I had been a bunch of people because there's an interesting crossover. A lot of people who love horror know the Carbonaro effect. So right. I get a lot of people who come up to me and stuff at those conventions. And um, I put on the mask almost to be like I was like, you know what? No one's going to know who I am when I wear this mask. It was almost like when Cranston wore the Cranston mask, you know. Right. Around. So I put on this plastic surgery disaster mask to kind of like hide. And it turned out that like people were coming up to me like, "Can I take a picture with you?" Just because of the mask, like it was a really cool mask. But they didn't know who I was under it, but they wanted a picture of me wearing that other mask. So it kind of didn't work. Oh, but, so like, you foiled yourself in that. Case. I know exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I forget. Oh well, Halloween. Okay, so drag Halloween characters being drag. Even even um, you know, I saw a t- documentary on Twisted Sister just recently. Did oh, you yeah. see that? We're Twisted Fucking Sister. Have you seen that? It's I have really not. Good. And that, you know, that was their alter ego, large character. And it was gender bending. And that was, you know, there is kind of a gender bending androgyny thing in drag. Or, well, I think hair metal in a way is like straight man drag because mm-hmm. it, it, it plays with those gender elements. But it's got that whole like we're badass and we're sure. rocking. Like it takes a real man to wear a dress. Yeah, and they they really lean into that so as to take away from the fact that D. Snyder is wearing you know shoulder pads and lipstick and like a teased out wig. It's so interesting. Wig? Well, teased out hair, I suppose. Uh, was, yeah, I think that was his hair. That was his hair. Yes. Sorry, D. <laughs> D's awesome. 
He is awesome. That, I mean, that was an incredible, it's a great documentary. Uh, but no, it's just, I, I think that that again then speaks to gender politics. Why, like, you know, I guarantee like that some of those dudes that were listening to Rat and Cinderella and Twisted Sister back in the day, Kiss, yeah. looking at, like Kiss is high drag, yeah. would probably be some of the same guys that would be like, I could never go see Jackie Beat or, you know, right. Paul. So I'm just interested like how we, the framing mechanisms. And that's probably, you know, an essay for some gender yeah. studies student to write somewhere, but... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, but it is, but it is back to the whole, ver- I mean, masquerade, right? You know, masquerade is what it is. I mean, because playing any character is a masquerade, which is an illusion. An actor is an illusionist. Right. Masquerade, you know, and, and in that sense, you know, drag queens a lot of times are called gender illusionists. Yes, right or gender, right? Gender illusion. Yes. So it's all magic. It's all magic and queer and horror. I love what what a perfect bow to wrap it all up with. <laughs> uh, Michael, what are you uh, working up, working on next? What's coming up for you? Where can people see you? Okay, um, I'm on tour uh, all throughout the United States. Uh, you can go to michaelcarbonaro.com, check out tickets. We're going to be playing all over the place. New York City coming up uh, in February and uh, a bunch of tour dates in March all over the place. And I'm, I'm, I love performing live. Love performing live. This is what I've done my whole life. Mm-hmm. Uh, just And fans of the show come and see uh, the live show tours and it's it's awesome to, to to a lot of people still wonder if like what i do on my tv show is bs camera tricks you know right. and like they get to see this stuff live and it's awesome and i'm right now i'm working on all new illusions to go in the show so it's like breaking in new material and trying out new tricks in front of people and that's just super blast while i develop this you know henning type show and also working on the film project well, I'm excited. Uh, I, yeah, I've seen you perform live. It's a, an amazing night out. If you are out there in the world and listening, please go see Michael. Also tune into the Carbonaro Effect uh, and keep up with him. He is an amazing performer, magician, and great guy. Also, I'll say the Carbonaro Effect is on True TV. Yes. It's on Thursdays at 10, 9 central. And uh, Michael, where can people find you? MichaelCarbonaro.com. I'm at Carbonaro on Instagram and Twitter. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming today. Awesome. Talking uh, horror and magic and all the stuff that we love. I uh, greatly appreciate it. Yeah, man. Great to be here. I'm Michael Verratti. This has been Dead for Filth. You are as always in Glam and Gore. Good night and good luck. Dead for Filth is a Reverie original podcast, executive produced by Aaliyah J. Daniels, LaShawn McGee, Chris Rodriguez, and Damian Pelletione. The show is produced by Drew Phillips and sound engineered and edited by Josh Perkins. Download the Reverie app and use the code FILTH for 25% off your first three months.